they're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean. Alex Bilodeau. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got it. Yes! yes. is off the podium an olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview as we bring back a favorite guest of ours on this show i teased this last week in our 250th episode and the guest that you are listening to today is one of the only brianna walker bob sled brie as she is best known as we spoke to brie back in march of 2021 episode 94 to be precise this is episode 251 we've had a few since brie and of course brie australian bobsledder in the monobob and the two woman bobsled competed in beijing finished fifth in the monobob 16th in the two woman and an amazing performance by brie she uh, had a great olympic games 10th after her first run in the monobob and still managed to finish fifth and we hear all about that and exactly what was going through her mind and how she was feeling throughout all of that and just what went on in that first run and how she was able to turn it around to finish in fifth whether or not she actually was disappointed or not of course after the event we saw her very excited very enthusiastic about finishing that but Brie opens up a little bit here about how she was feeling actually throughout all those emotions in the Olympics and we hear a lot about the lead up to the Olympics the selection how that all went about obviously a very stacked Australian female bobsled team we've had many of the team on this show so she gives us a bit of an insight onto how that team was chosen and then talks a little bit about what's next whether or not there can be another olympics for her whether she's going to go once again in milan and uh, everything else that may happen between now and 2020 2026 2026 there's only one 20 in front of the 26 there ben i'm going to shut up you're going to listen to brie right now this is a great chat sit back relax and listen to my chat our chat with australian olympic bobsledder brianna walker So very excited today to be able to welcome back a guest to Off the Podium. We spoke to her in March of 2021, little less than a year away from an Olympic Games where we talked about her career, her prospects for the Olympics, her naming of the sled and everything else in between then. And since we last spoke to her, she did qualify for an Olympics, did quite well at the Olympics and she's here to talk about her time at the Olympics and everything else in between. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show the one, the only, Brie Walker. Brie, first of all, big pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining oh. us once again and off the podium. Thanks for having me back. I'm sad to be back and chat all things Olympics and bobsleigh and the future. So, yeah, let's go. <laughs> it's 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 so exciting because it's similar. We had Dean and Tali back on a couple of weeks ago and we'd also spoken to them several months out from the Olympics. And we always like to brag a little bit here and off the podium and say, like, we, you know, we, we got you on before everyone knew who you were. Like, I mean, you know, everyone knows <laughs> you now. Everyone knows Dean and Tali now. You're old household names in Australia. But, you know, back when we got you on, you were just you were just the – great athletes that we were we were touting as great athletes so um i just want to take some subtle credit for that brie (laughs) yeah go for it that's fine (laughs) yes yes uh, i'm glad that you can be on board with that but i mean it's 
the time of recording this, we're we're recording this at the beginning of, of May in, in 2022. So it's uh, been now nearly, I guess, three months since Beijing. I mean, it's hard to believe it's been that long. I mean, it, it feels like it was just yesterday. I mean, how have you been since coming back from Beijing? Has it been a bit of a whirlwind, kind of a adjusting back to post-Olympic life now? Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like it's been two or three months, that's for sure. And I'm pretty, like, when I landed in Australia, I still kind of kept going because I had a whole bunch of people, like, obviously very excited about my results at the Olympics. And they were like, all right, what do you want to do for the next four years? I'm like, guys, I don't even know what I want to do for the next four minutes. <laughs> and But they were, it was important that I was to, you know, jump on that enthusiasm. And so I had to, like, put together my four-year plan. I had to put together my four-year budget and then just talk with people about how I'm going to achieve what I want to achieve over the next four years so I kind of just had to keep rolling a little bit and it's been nice like over that time everything is slowly kind of dialed down and I've been able to relax a little bit more and you know enjoy the time with my family and my friends um but yeah it's it's still it has kind of just kept rolling from the Olympics and um physically I took a huge break I like it was like nah that's it I'm not I don't want to see a gym I don't want to look at weights <laughs> or an athletics track um for at least a month but again I've slowly started to get back into that over the last little while um and then yeah I'd probably stay in Australia for another month and then uh, once I head back to Germany it's going to be like everything's just going to kick off again, full-time training um, and then just, yeah, trying to put piece together the puzzle so I am ready for the next four years. Is that pretty much the the worst question to ask an Olympian after an Olympics is like, uh, you're looking forward to 2026? Like, are you ready to go? Because like, I mean, as you were sort of saying there, you know, you've got a lot to digest and everything from that. And it's a long time to commit, particularly for winter athletes in Australia Mm -hmm. where, you've got to work out, as you said, things like budget and things like that. So is it just a case of after the next Olympics, if people are talking to you, don't ask about the next Olympics for at least a few months? Yeah. Well, don't ask at least after uh, straight after the event. I think that was uh, the one thing that I was just like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Like <laughs> After I just finished everything, it just, it's so crazy. You're just working like for the, for four years, you're just solely focused on this one event. And of course, like there's stepping stones along the way. So you have other like um, other goals that you want to achieve along the way before you get to that big goal of the Olympics. But once you get there and you've achieved this big goal of being at the Olympics, um, you just kind of have to digest that. And then you know, when people ask you like, oh, are you ready for the next four years? And I'm just like, I don't know. I need to give me a minute. <laughs> but um. No, for me, I always knew that the next, uh, like, Olympics was uh, going to be a goal for me, Um, and it was just figuring out how I need to do that. So that's what I needed a minute for. I'm like, I need a minute to figure out how I'm going to get to the next four years. So um, I'm slowly getting there. Like, that's it's definitely – I haven't figured that out yet, but I'm slowly getting there, and and that's also very exciting. You you mentioned about you don't want to see the gym, you you just want to take some time off, you know, all those things – I can almost weirdly imagine it's almost a great time for an Olympian in that initial period because then it is that case of no gym, I don't have to worry about my diet, fuck it, I'm going to eat McDonald's, I'm going to eat this. Like is that kind of this glorious little period after an Olympics where it's kind of like you just you just like the rest of us, Bree. You just do what you want when you want and don't care about the body for five minutes. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what I did. I, I'm, I'm very like strict and I'm um, regimented in there and how I – 
um, manage any, everything in my life. So my physical training, my mental training, uh, eating, sleeping, um, recovery, all that. I'm, I, I do have a process to all those elements. Um, but after the Olympics, I was just like, I'm doing whatever I want. And like, even like I'm gluten intolerant, I have other food intolerance. I ate everything under the sun and I was just like, I'll suffer consequences later. Like I'll, I'm eating everything. I'm doing everything. Um, and that's been really enjoyable, but I, I feel like I only like to do that for so long. And so I didn't relish in it for too long. I kind of just gave myself a little bit of time to be free and do whatever like I felt like doing, but I've slowly kind of come back to my ways because I think I I just like it better. I actually, I don't do it because like I, you know, want to stay fit and look fit and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, I actually enjoy, you know, eating healthy and working out and, um, and sleeping and recovery practices. Like, I enjoy all that. So, um, yeah, that's, I've, I've just slowly gotten back into my, my general way of life. What was the, the one food that you hadn't had basically for a while that you just, you relished then you just, you made the most of when you could? Almond croissants. Oh, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> love them. I, I went, I went a little bit crazy. It was, wow. I was <laughs> to the point where I was having a few a week and I was just like, oh, great. <laughs> You probably need to throw that back. <laughs> save, save some for the next cycle, you know, and just, you know, you can eat the world out of them basically. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I was like, when I was having a few a week, and, and they're very expensive too. And so, right, exactly. Like, of course. Almond, it's not normal croissants, almond croissants. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, no, they're bougie. the fancy ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got to go out. I mean, again, you're an Olympian now, so you, you're allowed to treat yourself every now and then to an yeah, arm and, and croissant. Don't me, and don't get me wrong, I probably will still treat myself to them, but I just like not multiple a week. I, like maybe just one on the weekend or on my rest day or something. But, yeah, no, uh, I, I went a little bit crazy. But, you know, it, YOLO, it was the, it was just after the Olympics and I um, I missed them and I, I just went for it. Since we last spoke, obviously the Olympics we'll get to, but sort of in, in the lead up to the Olympics, you you had the World Cup for obviously the monobob and, and, and the two man as well. Just through that whole process, how did you go into that feeling? I mean, do you obviously there's pressure, I can imagine thinking that's an Olympic cycle, so there's that on the mind, but was it a case of coming off the back of the successful season you'd had the year before that you were feeling great. This was kind of, you'd had a good off season. I mean, was it all just a confidence going into that in the lead up to what led to ultimately qualifying for the Olympics? Yeah, that was exactly it. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I had the potential to hit podiums, especially in the monobob. And so I was excited and confident to just go out there and do that. And my first race actually, um, We'd kind because of, the beginning of the season we went to China and we learned the new track for the first time and that was that was a really tricky way to start your season because you're going to a track that you've never slid on before and you don't know how to slide on because everyone's kind of playing a guessing game at this stage because you're not given the instructions on how to drive down this track you simply just go to the track you look at the corners you say I think this is how we would drive this cor- uh, this uh, this corner so. 
that's that's the first thing. And the second thing, I hadn't been behind the sled in uh, in like six months. So you, you always want to start the season a little bit slower to get used to driving again. But I hadn't had that opportunity to do that because we had to ship our sleds over to China. So it was a really rough way to start the season. And so then when I went, when we went back to Europe and started siding in the World Cups, my first race was really rusty. And I think I came six in my first race. And I was like, huh, that's not what we had prepared for. We hadn't prepared to come six. We had prepared to hit podiums. And so I sat down with my coach and we analysed a few things and we were like, we're going to have to make some pretty big changes if we want to be able to like start hitting podiums. And it was risky. Like we we changed up some uh, our equipment and um, I changed like certain ways of driving the track and we just went for it in the next week and it was either going to, you know, we were, it was either going to be a big flop or a big success and it was a, and it was a good success. I came third in that race and that just started the role of hitting the podiums each week. Um, and then my confidence slowly built more and more and more. Um, and so, yeah, it, that, was, that was really the way I wanted to execute that season, especially in Monobob. When you talk about changing the driving style, what – how do you do that? Like, is it a case of something mentally you do, something physically? I mean, what, what do yeah. you change up and how do you do that? It was just more more mentally and getting used to driving on uh, a track that I'd known, like I know how to drive because we were obviously in China and I was trying to get used to driving that track. And China was, was very different compared to all the other tracks like all over the world. Um, and he's just like, we, we have to kind of like rein it in and, and drive how you normally drive. And I guess I hadn't kind of put the, put China behind me yet and, um, and come back to knowing how to drive, uh, the track in like Eagles because that's where we were at in Austria. Um, and so it was more mental. It was, it was not like physically changing anything. It was just more mentally like resetting and, um, and zoning back into knowing how to drive this track. And was that something going back to the fact that it was an Olympic year? Like if, if hypothetically this wasn't an Olympic year, is that something that would worry you as much, I suppose, in a non-Olympic cycle or because it's an Olympic year, you feel like there's a bit of extra pressure to get that right quicker, you know, rather than later? Yes and no. I, I feel like in the beginning I was like, oh my gosh, like I, we, like I just came six in that race. That is definitely not what I want to be producing. But I luckily I have very good people around me that kind of just like said, okay, cool your jets. Like it's fine. Let's just figure out how like what like reset and and figure out how we want to execute next week. And that's exactly what we were able to do. And so I'm very lucky that. I guess I've developed as an athlete, I've matured as an athlete to be able to like stop um, myself from panicking too much. And then I also have people around me that are able to do the same and we just kind of all reset together and then we move, move forward and, and just try and execute what we know that we can. I know we talked last time a bit about the qualification process and sort of how it works a little bit, but obviously you mentioning with the monobob, you go six first, but then you, you go third, first, second, 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 seventh. So basically through all that period, you I guess knowing that, okay, I'm doing enough to qualify a sled for the Olympics in the monobob, but of course you're then working on, on the two-man as well. I mean, how is that then mentally for yourself? Because personally you are probably thinking, okay, well, it looks good for me in the monobob and I'm going to qualify Australia for the monobob, but 
I'm working on this too. And you've got a very stacked Australian female bobsled team of a lot of athletes to sort of mm. work around there. So, I mean, how is that mentally to kind of balance the two and try and say focus on both of them at the same time? Yeah, it's and that's been quite hard over the over the especially the last two years. I, because of the introduction of the new monobob sleds, they were actually really quite different to drive um, compared to the old plank sleds that we, I was driving for the first two years. The old plank monobob sleds, but then they they were also very different to drive compared to our two man. So trying to balance up um, or learn how to drive the two different kinds of sleds was really quite difficult. But then you also have to add in the element that in the two man you have somebody else in the back. Um, and, and you can't obviously influence how they're going and how they're going to perform. You obviously, like as a pilot, I try and support my team as much as possible so they are able to execute their best performance. But you can't have that much of an impact. And unfortunately, Sarah even had a concussion. and She got a concussion from a rough ride in China. And um, then so she was working her way back up to fitness. And in our first race, I thought we were going to be all ready to go. And both of us didn't produce a very good performance. And again, it's just a matter of um, like look like reviewing that race and be like, okay, how are we going to produce a better performance? And so that's the kind of what we had to do. And like I said, having the element of having somebody else in the back does play a factor. And our federation wanted to like like they suggested this year that we do a little bit of switching around of brakemen here, there and everywhere. And then that's how Kiara ended up actually in my team through the suggestion of the Federation. But I haven't really experienced that before. And so um, you're obviously quickly trying to work with somebody that you've never really worked with before. And I think that does um, mean that you fluctuate in your results. So you can see like with Monobob, my results were relatively consistent because it's just me in the sled. But having somebody else and then changing that up all the time, it means you're results are going to go up and down um so mentally I just had to kind of stay on my game and, stay and just try and be like okay you just have to go out there and produce your best performance and then hopefully that your teammate is going to be able, going to go and do the same um and then looking forward I think for the next four years that's I've learned a lot about two men over the last two years um and then I think there's just um things I'm going to try and implement and um is to help my team have a little bit more consistent results in the two men. Because that fascinating situation you're talking about there about how it was sort of alternated, because I remember watching the, the very first World Cup, obviously yourself and Sarah, you, you've got Ash Kiara, like it's kind of just these elements of it. Then all of a sudden you've got, they switch it up around. And then ultimately it's you and Kiara who go when sort of, as you said, you've been working a lot with Sarah for most of the time too. So yeah. how, how is that then put on the selection committee when you qualify a sled you've got so many great athletes to choose from and then ultimately it's you and Kiara get the nod like I mean do you have an idea of how that works are, are, are you able to give suggestions like hey I think maybe Kiara's the way to go here I mean like how does all that work that you and Kiara end up going there when say you've not been working with her as long as some of the other athletes there yeah, yeah. so as um the selection committee came to me and they asked me like what um like what my suggestion would be. And I said, honestly, I've been working with Sarah for three years. So we know each other inside and out. And Sarah's like, 
I feel very comfortable with Sarah and um, she's she's been my ride and die for the last three years. So I obviously feel very confident with that, with her. Um, but like I said, she had a concussion and she also got COVID at Christmas time. Um, and so she was really struggling to, she was always like nearly peaking and my coach and my push coach was telling me, yeah, Sarah's getting back into form. She's doing very well. Um, and then she was hit with a, a, like a road bump and, uh, um, and it was just really hard because she, we just together as a team, we weren't able to lay down a performance that was better than what me and Kiara did within our first few races together. And so, if you're thinking in terms of high performance, you have to go with whoever is the, who's produced the best performances. Um, and that was ultimately Kiara. And I was very lucky that Kiara had done a fantastic job in our first race. We actually came seventh, which is like the the my career best performance, but then also Australia's um, equals yeah. Australia's career best performance as well. And so you can't deny that that is a fantastic performance. And so I just said to the selection committee, it's ultimately up to you and however you, you choose. But in terms of high performance, I can see that Kiara has produced a fantastic performance. Sarah is my go-to and I'm going to be very, uh, feel very comfortable with her. So it's, it's up to the selection policy, I guess. And the selection policy obviously focuses on high performance and that's ultimately why Kiara was able to go. And do you then know that you're going to be the pilot of the two women because obviously Ash is involved in, I guess, the how the whole qualification points in qualifying that sled. So, I mean, do you get the tap on the shoulder to say, hey, we're choosing you as the driver over Ash or, like, do you not know that until a certain – like, how does all that work out that you're able to put for those suggestions? Yeah, our selection policy always said that the person with the high uh, with the highest rank combination um, score, so the combination of Monobob and two men, would be the pilot that was selected. So I was I was well above um, Ash in that sense. So I knew that I was going to be selected. Um, and just the weird way that the IBSF works is that um, they yeah they were selecting nations or like having nations. Um, get the quota position through the two men. And that was, it was quite confusing how that was done. Um, so yeah, I did know how, with how I was tracking, especially with Monobob, that was keeping me well, like ranked very high. So I knew how, like how I was going and probably how it was all going to down, go down um, around selection time. And I can imagine that's then tricky to, I guess, talk to Sarah, somebody who, as you said, she's your ride or die. You've worked with her for so long and ultimately it comes down to, she goes as a reserve. I mean, do yeah. you break that news to her before she hears it from the selection, given that you've got that close relationship, or is it kind of a bit of the other way around and then you've got to I, sort of yeah, have that I didn't her? know. I didn't know that she wasn't going to be selected as the competing brakeman. I found out when she found out. So wow. I was just able to give selection uh, suggestions of who I would select, and ultimately I was just like, like I'm happy with both. Um, and there's pros and cons to both girls. And I then um, I then walked in like the morning that we got the email saying that we were selected as a brakeman and pilot. I walked into Sarah's room and I was just like, hey, did you get an email? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, what did it say? And she said it said reserved. And I mean, me and Sarah are very close and we're, we're teammates, but we're also friends. And, um, and we just sat there and we just hugged and we cried because like ultimately like we did we tried to do it together and and we've been through a lot together and 
um yeah it was it, that moment for us was like it was it was a bit heartbreaking but we knew what we needed to do and we knew like why it was ultimately so, like selected in that way because it was focusing on high performance um and then Sarah just like you know took the bull by the horns and she was just like honestly the best spare I could have ever asked for and I um ultimately like a lot of my results this season have been because Sarah has been like like I said my ride and die and has been able to help me so much um so I I can't commend her more on the way she acted she acted so professional um and I hope that I hope she's still part of my team in the future um but if she does go off and she does decide to go and pilot herself I wish her all the best so, because I know, like, if you don't ultimately make your Olympic dream happen on somebody else's team, you've got to go and secure it yourself. So, you, and that's the way Bobsay seems to work. You know, you're a brakeman for a little bit and then you go off and pilot and she's young enough to be able to go do that. So, if that is what happens, then I wish her all the best and I'm excited because then I guess she ultimately becomes a competitor and, and yeah. it's, it's good to have friendly rivalry, you know, and so... That'll be exciting to see Australian bobsleigh grow even more. Well, you know that better than anyone, I guess, kind of from the, the heartbreak to obviously four years later, obviously with what happened to Pyeongchang to then what happened in Beijing. I mean, going besides those emotions you're talking about there with that with Sarah, like just for yourself when you got that confirmation that this is this is it, I'm an Olympian, was it <laughs> again a case of amazement or was it knowing what happened in Pyeongchang, was it – I'm not fucking believing this until I'm at the start line. <laughs> like, no. I know this could happen. I know what can happen in this situation. <laughs> yeah, sure. Like, it, it, no, I didn't allow myself to go there. I didn't. I got the phone call and I was, um, I was selected as a pilot and it just was like, I, it just made me kind of reflect on the last four years and even like flashback to when I got the phone call from uh, um, Ian Chessman, who's actually the new um, AOC president now. Um, And he told me that ultimately we weren't going to be nominated for Pyeongchang. And um, now I, then I got the phone call from the Federation. They're saying that you're being nominated. I was just like, wow, like, look how far I've come. Like, and I'm so excited to be able to go and live out my dream. Um, and yeah, I didn't allow myself to go there and, and like continue to think like, oh, maybe this isn't real. Da, da, da. I was like, no, no, this is real. You deserve this. Like, embrace it. Which... Speaking of embracing it, we always like to hear from our guests, you know, that those moments that ever, comes with an Olympics from getting that phone call to getting the uniform to arriving in the village, all those kind of things. I mean, are you soaking that up more so now this time around because, again, of how close it was back in Pyeongchang? And what does that mean to you then when you're in the village and you've got your uniform and everything that led up to you ultimately getting to that start line? Yeah, I think that those little bits, like getting my uniform was a really big, um, exciting moment. Um, it was like a big aha moment. Like I was just like, wow, like this is awesome. And I I actually really didn't video or do any like kind of Instagram stuff during it because I was just like, I'm doing this by myself and I'm because this is something that I have dreamed of for so long. 
and then also going to the opening ceremony. And China did it so well there. They had the Olympic rings just in front of where the athletes were walking in. And that was another moment that I was like, oh, my God, you are here, girl. Like, you have made it. And this is what you have been watching, like, all your life, like, athletes um, just walk into the opening ceremony and I am here standing and doing exactly what I've been watching for years. And so they were the moments that I really enjoyed and really took in. Um, but then when it came to competition, I just kind of went through my normal motions and, and tried to make it as close to um, a World Cup competition as possible. What was the vibe like going into the opening ceremony, given that Dean and Tali had obviously been competing. I mean, back here in Australia, Australia had gone bloody curling crazy. We were already hooked into the to the Winter Olympics. But was there something a little bit more, I guess, exciting given that Australia had already been competing and you're walking out there with Dean, obviously. He's there as well because they're competing basically right next door to the business. I mean, was there just something a little bit of an extra spark amongst the Australian team given that Australia had already been competing the days in the lead-up to the opening ceremony? I must admit, I really was like focused on what I needed to do at that moment. Like we rolled into China and I actually had both of my coaches had gotten COVID just before leading into the Olympics. And so we kind of had to like set up and do everything ourselves as soon as we hit the ground. Um, and so the going to the opening ceremony, ceremony was the first time that I had really kind of been like, oh my gosh, I'm here because I'd just been on autopilot for like since I had landed in China. And I was just like, that was the first moment where I'd seen, D- I saw Dean and then actually it was really awesome. Like uh, Dean and Pete were sitting there, Pete's their coach. And um, we saw them competing on the screen as we were getting ready to go into the bird's nest for nice. the opening ceremony. And I was just like, oh, we're already on, we're up here, we're up and running. Um, and it was really cool to be able to meet the other athletes and ask how their preparation was going and everything like that. And so that was a really cool pause moment for me to just be like, wow, take this in because this doesn't happen every day. So with that in mind, sort of in the lead up to your event, because you're sort of towards the end, uh, obviously, well, I guess in the middle area for the monobob and then towards the end with you and Kiara, I mean, just with the sliding team, are you sort of, you know, close with and sort of paying attention to obviously Alex had a great, you know, uh, event and then, you know, you've got Nick going on there and then obviously what happens with Jacqueline? Like, I mean, is it yeah. kind of something that you can focus on that to soak a bit of that in or are you still yeah. so focused on yourself that you can't sort of let yourself get involved in that? No, no, you definitely like soak that in and take that in. That was a really cool part. Like our our village was actually quite small. There was only the sliding sports athletes and then the downhill skiers. And um, so when any when anybody was anybody was competing, we were like, oh, like everyone come into the lounge room and uh, like make sure we're watching this. And I remember sitting there and watching Alex compete. And because I know how sliding works. I was just like, he is laying down a run here. And I was just like getting really excited. And everyone was like, what's happening? What's happening? I'm like, he is nailing this, guys. Like, watch this, watch this. And then all of a sudden he like shot the last straight. And I was just like, he is like, that's money right here. And then he's just crossed the line and he's celebrating. And I that was really, really cool. And um Obviously, when Jackie was going, like, we also, like, kind of understanding the sports and, like, being around skiers, they were like, what's happening? What's happening? And, like, guys, she's on here. Like, it's she's going to lay down a run. And, um, and yeah, it was just, like, 
so cool to be able to also educate other people on sliding sports because they also then educated us on like the skiing sports. Um, and that was really cool to be able to just learn different sports and why like that athlete athlete performed very well and why that athlete didn't perform so well. And then also you hear like, I would say like, Oh, that's a mistake there. And then you'll recognize that down like a few corners down. Um, and then by the end, like the people will be like, Oh, that's not, that's a mistake right there. Isn't it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a mistake right there. And so <laughs> it was really cool to be able to teach them about sliding sports. Does that also help you then when you're watching the skeleton or the luge and you're seeing things like mistakes and things like that, that, as a bobsledder, you can go, okay, well, I'm not going to take it that way or I'm not going to do that. Can you sort of get advice from the different sliding sports yeah. to help you? Yeah, a little bit. Like I talked to Dom, who's Jackie's husband, about it, and he was just saying like the entry of Chrysler, which was a big 360 circle, um, is very important because everybody who enters Chrysler correctly is about one kilometre up at the exit. Um, and I just kept watching that and I watched how they um, entered and exited, exited Chrysler and it was true. And so I was just like, okay, so that is a corner that is like impeccable for me to be able to execute so I can then exit the corner and uh, be able to be a kilometre or so up. So that was that was really cool to be able to learn from somebody else. What is that corner like? I mean, that corner just looks insane. I mean, yeah. was that as insane as it looked to be able to take that full speed in a bobsled? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a really cool corner and it was so long. Like you have no idea. I think like if you were to watch like our World Cup races and you'd see other Chryslers, you'd be like, oh, that's a big corner. But for us, it flies through pretty fast. But that corner just took forever and you were just like you had so much time to assess where you were which is very nice like you obviously like want to be able to know where you are in in space and um and be able to correct it if you have the time um but yeah you just had so much time to be able to do that in that corner <laughs> how positive was it in on, i guess going into your event in the monobob to see jackie win that silver medal because i mean oh. i think it's something still that I think Australia needs to imagine that we won a medal in a sliding sport. Well, we don't even <laughs> remotely have a track in our country that yeah. can do that. I mean, it's still such an amazing achievement. But, I mean, I can imagine, given that you went into the mono bob as, as a you know, very good medal chance, that mm -hmm. that's got to give you a bit more energy, does it? D did that sort of help you in celebrating somewhat with Jackie before you got to your event? Yeah, definitely. That like, because we also had come off uh, the excitement of Jakara winning gold. Yeah. And that was so motivating. Like I was just like, yes, let's go. Like that is so exciting. And then Jackie to come away with a medal. And also like I obviously know a little bit more about Jackie's like background and her journey, like getting there. And uh, that was really exciting because like knowing the story of how somebody got to where they are just makes it so much more enjoyable to watch them be successful and, and enjoy, relish in the moment. And so um, that was really cool. And the, the morning of my event, I walked into the, um, the lounge and Jackie was there with her medal and I was just like, oh, my God, like that's real. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really cool moment to be able to share with her before I went out and competed. It was amazing the day too when it came to your uh, the, the final two runs because that, of course, was the same day that we had the aerials going on as well. And I, I know mm -hmm. I was working at Channel 7 at the time and we were just like, wow, this is going to be like the biggest day. And at that point, 
I think we'd won all of four of our medals at that point too. So it was like, <laughs> this is, you know, sick, we could be getting six medals here. Like it was unheard of, you know, going into that. So it was, it was a very exciting time as a spectator. And as you're sort of saying, as an athlete there with a very successful Australian team, it's obviously <laughs> pretty good moods when you eventually are able to hit the track and, and compete. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the vibe was high and I just kind of like rode that vibe all the way. So it was it was a great time for our team. With the training runs, because they were getting a bit of attention in Australia because you were doing pretty well in the training runs, setting the fastest mm-hmm. times and that. I mean, when you're doing a training run, are you worrying about the times and worrying that, hey, I'm the fastest or is that just something that is it's, the media is paying attention to that? You're just worried yeah. about your own performance and don't care about where you're placed. Yeah, I actually didn't even know that the training times were something that were televised or even paid attention to. Um, and, and you often see me like on the camera because like when we're at World Cups, they do record our training runs just to kind of, um, I know, get, I guess, get used to positions and all that. And I'm always playing up to the camera, like a blow and a kiss and then having a good time, especially with the camera guys, because they're awesome and you talk to them behind the scenes. Um, and so I didn't actually know that the, those training runs were being recorded. And, they were live. Um, we were watching them. We were on air and we were actually watching them live. <laughs> um, so you, you guys all saw me being a fool. Um, we but, did, yes. <laughs> but, I, um, but I, just with those training runs, like, I knew I was laying down runs and I knew that they were going very well, but I always know that it's just training and that's not what matters. What matters is what counts is the results on the day. So I knew that I had people like Kaylee and Alana were going to come for me and that you can never, you can never rest on, on the fact that like your, your training is going well. So your race is going to go well. Um, and yeah, it was just something that I was like, okay, I am going well. Let's just continue that process and go through it. And, it was ultimately like it, it was a little bit shocking that in my first run I didn't produce the performances that I had been producing in in racing, uh, in, in the training run, sorry. And so I knew I had made a big mistake in the first run and I was like, okay, I let's hope that this doesn't knock me off too much because my coach did say to me, my driving coach, he was like, you will always have one bad run, always. And he's like, what you need to do is then like, kind of regroup and then go up and, and, and rectify the mistakes that you've made. So I was like, okay, I made a big mistake. I hadn't done that that week. And I was like, I now need to go up and rectify it. And then to come up and see 10 next to my time, I was like, Ooh, that hurts. And I was like, right. I'm never one to like count myself out but this is going to be a hard, lot of hard work to be able to get back up to where I want to be. Um, and I learned a lot of lessons from that first day. I actually wasn't all that nervous. I actually think I squished a lot of my nerves and, and emotions um, and to kind of, I guess, be on the other side of um, the bell curve. And that is what I think affected my performance on the first day so much is that I didn't allow myself to feel the emotion and the nerves um, of competing at my first Olympics. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I was, I sat down and I reviewed that first day with my coach and I was just like, all right, I know what I did wrong. It wasn't necessary in my driving. I just blocked out all my emotions. So now I t- tomorrow I'm just going to go in there and enjoy the day. And so the next day I allowed myself to feel everything. I was nervous. I was excited. Um, I, like, would look outside and, like, take in where I was at. I was like, 
I, I looked around at some of the athletes and, but like, not really, like I just was kind of like scanning everybody and just feeling very in the moment. And I think that's what, how I was able to then go out on the second day and produce my best performances because um, I just allowed myself to feel a lot more. You're basically confirming that Cool Runnings is true because if you remember in Cool Runnings on the first day, they sucked and then they went the next day and they embraced their Jamaicanness and they embraced the emotions and they did really well. So you're confirming that Cool Runnings is – there you go. Look at that. Yes, yes. I lived the Cool Runnings. (laughs) You literally did. You lived everything that they laid out on that first run in Cool Runnings. See? Yep. Crazy! I didn't even realize that. So I need to go back and watch the movie again because yeah. I didn't realize that. But yeah, that's that. Pretty much, that's what I did. And like you, it's for me. I've just come to terms with the fact that like that was my first Olympics, my first real highlight event where I was a true competitor. Um, and so I just take. I'm going to take that experience and I'm going to bottle it up and I'm going to put that towards the next four years. Would it have been different had the two-man been first then? Do you think that that then would have gotten those nerves out of the way had you and Kiara competed first and then you say swap the monobob and the two-man around and that would have made a difference? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's it's a completely different ball game because you have somebody else in your sled and I think you're able to bounce off each other a little bit more. Um, but in monobob, it's just you. And so you have I kind of – I do approach them slightly different um, because – but I do, I guess – there is a part of me that still keeps my team very Im- involved in Monobob. Like I still, like Sarah will always come up to me and give me a hug and like G me up a little bit and um, and you still feel like you're very much a part of the team but you are alone standing on the block. Um, and so like I just have to like not, I don't need to focus on like a call or a cadence at the beginning to start. Like it's all just me and, and I go when I want to go. Um, so it, it, I do approach them slightly different. Tenth after the first run, as you say, but then from that point on, you set the fifth fastest time in the second run and the second fastest time in, in round three, round four, you ended up ultimately finishing fifth overall. I mean, how... Like the thing that was great about watching you at the end there was, you know, I think some people probably thought like, oh, fifth, disappointed, genuine medal chance. But you you embraced it. You were celebrating it. You were pumped. You were excited. The interviews you gave afterwards, you were so energetic and enthusiastic and, and proud of what you achieved. I mean, was there any disappointment at all that you oh. gotten fifth and missed out on a medal? Or was it just purely elation you'd finished fifth in Olympic Games and you, you didn't no, really no. care that you didn't get a medal? No, no, I cared a lot. <laughs> I cared, I cared You're a, a great lot. actor, Brie. There you go. <laughs> no, I, and it wasn't acting. It wasn't acting. Like I pure, like I really was proud of the fact that I was able to go from tenth to becoming fifth. Like that, that is a hard feat in our sport, and I think like that's really something that um, I guess like I, I'm not sure if people actually quite comprehend. Like if you were tenth in the first run. Uh, your best you're probably able to jump up like a few spots but like to be able to like pretty much jump up five spots um and fight my way back like that there is was huge and I was embracing that uh, achievement um don't get me wrong I went away to my room and I cried and cried and cried because I was so heartbroken because my goal was obviously a medal and I wasn't able, and I wasn't able to execute that 
as well as I wanted. If I had two days like my second day, I would have a medal around my neck. But I have come to terms with it and I think I wrote in, in my um in my Instagram post after the Monobob event, like, don't get me wrong, like, I obviously wanted more, but I'm content. And I am, I am content that I came fifth at my first Olympics. And those girls, like I said in my post-race interview, those girls that were in front of me are the four, like, some of the four best drivers in the world. So to be high, to be mixing it with them is, is huge, but don't get me wrong. I was upset that I didn't get a medal and now that's the driving force for me for the next four years. Because I can imagine, as you say, a driving force because, you know, you make your mind up, you go to another Olympics and then everything that you're just saying about those first race nerves, things like that, you, you sort of, you've done now. First Olympics over and done with. So then you go to another one and then you can just like I suppose bottle all that up and put it towards an energy and then that 0.43 of a second that you're off a medal, that's just nothing now because you can just push towards and, and getting that medal around your neck in the next four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and everything, like you learn, from every experience in your life, you learn something. And so that's all I did. I've just learned from this huge experience that I've just been through and um, I can't beat myself up too much. I've never experienced an Olympics. I've never experienced a huge highlight event like that before where I am a true competitor and and people are hunting me down. And so I need to get comfortable with it being hunted and I need to get comfortable with um, uh, being able to execute four um, four high-quality runs instead of just two because on World Cup we only have two heats. Uh, but I need to, at the Olympics and at a world championships, you need to execute four um, uh, runs to the best of your ability to be able to be on the podium. And so that's everything that I'm going to be doing over the next four years is going to be geared towards our highlight events. Be honest with me, Bree. The reason why you were only 10th after the first run, you didn't name the sled Ben, did you? You, you didn't. I you, did. I you told did, you, you I did. Oh, okay. So maybe that's maybe to be honest. That's why you got tenth in that first run. And then you just changed the name after the <laughs> no, first one. No, I mean, I, I call like that's my little baby because it's like it's smaller than my two men, so it's my little baby. But yeah, now like I, I told you, I'm just going to name it Big Ben. So yeah, Big Ben did a pretty good job in the end. Well, that's the nicest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. So um, I might just use that clip and isolate it and go, cool, awesome. I've just had that, uh, my, my one chance at the Olympics. So I I, I, <laughs> I appreciate that. It, I mean, the event itself overall, obviously, Kaylee winning the gold. I mean, the only non-German to win a sliding gold medal at the Beijing Olympics, which is absolutely insane, the dominance yeah. of, of the Germans. We're obviously a bit of a co-Canadian Australian show. So uh, our Canadian co-host Colin may or may not be entirely happy with Kaylee that she won that goal for America, but that's a whole another uh, conversation. But I mean, what's it like to at least be, in, you said you've got those, you know, four women ahead of you, the best in the world. And to, to have Kaylee, who's, you know, so successful at the Olympics and she's gone out and won this and dominated it as well. I mean, stacked field to, to finish fifth in a field like that, as you were saying, it's still obviously yep. a, a pretty great achievement to, to finish behind those women. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, I think what people have to understand that those four women in front of me, they all have programs. They all have multiple coaches, uh, programs that are well-supported. 
and uh, here I am, Little Australia, self-funded, one coach running the show. Um, I've, I was able to bring in a fantastic physio, um, but, again, like we, we just kind of like it was a makeshift kind of program. And then we were still able to hang with the big programs. And that's something that's really huge. And I have to often remind myself that I'm mixing it with people who do have it like like a fair bit easier than me. Um, it's not something that like deters me or, you know, that gets me down, but it is something that you have to kind of like remind yourself occasionally be like, girl, stop being so hard on yourself. Like you're mixing it with some people who have got pretty, like pretty good setups and you've created your setup. And so be proud of that, that you're able to achieve such a high performance um, uh, result uh, against those girls. Which I can imagine too, if you put it in a different way, if you were to go back, Let's go back to Vancouver and turn around and say, in a, in 12 years' time at Olympics, let's not even ignore the fact that Jackie won a silver medal, say that Australia's going to finish fifth in bobsled at an Olympic Games. You'd be like, wow, mm-hmm. we'd take that, even for yourself, when you first get into a sled. And if somebody said to you, you're going to finish fifth in an Olympics, I think you're probably going to take that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And honestly, like at the beginning of this like last Olympic cycle, my goal was just to make the Olympics. Like I wanted to be a competitor, but it was just like actually being a competitor, not just coming last by two seconds that often does happen with um, the smaller nations that kind of scrape in on the continental position that we used to have. Um, I wanted to be a true competitor. I wanted to qualify outright and be mixing it with those teams that um, have been sliding forever. I never anticipated that I could be challenging for the medals. It wasn't until two years out from the Olympics when I got my, um, my, my, my first personal coach um, and he said, if we do this right, we can actually challenge for the medals. And I was like, all right, cool, let's go for it. And like that and then that season and that world cup season came and I won my first um two world cup races and I was like we can actually do this like and so it was just kind of like a realization over time that I can actually do something magical at these olympics now sitting here I know that I have the capabilities to do that so next now the next goal it's not like I'm going to like in a few years time be like progress and be like oh I can actually maybe do something magical at these Olympics no no that's now the goal and so that's uh, what all my preparation and my planning is gearing towards speaking of preparation and planning the monobob finishes you sort of go through those wave of emotions you're talking about and you got to switch focus to the two man, how how quick is that? Like how quick all of a sudden you say so you go back to your room, you have a bit of a cry, you sort of you get that. But is it then just okay back into back into competition mode? Come on, Kiara, let's let's do this thing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was the next day. It was our first day of two man training, and so you really have to kind of get all those emotions out and gear up. And um, I actually did the first day. I went back and I we did our first day of two man training, and it was shocking. And I, I was still driving like like I was in the monobob sled. It wasn't working very well. I hadn't really let out of a lot of emotion from the race the night before. And I just felt a little bit all over the place. And I said to the girls, I need a break. I know myself now. I need to have a day. And I had that day and I was able to um, do a lot of talking, uh, 
like with people and reset myself so then I could go out on that last day of training and be able to um, do a much better training session and then go into the race feeling much more confident. Just a two-part question. I always am fascinated with particularly winter Olympians in Australia when it comes to things like media attention because, you, you know, we are, unfortunately don't really pay much attention to a lot of the winter athletes until it comes to the Olympics. So you obviously got a little bit more of eyes on you as a, as a country. But how do you adapt to a few more eyes on you than you're used to? But the second part of that question is when you've got someone like Lydia Lassala who is there, who is obviously, a, a, I think, a bit of a mentor, a bit of a friend of yours, like does that make it a little bit easier when you've got – her maybe to deal with a bit yeah. more than say if it was just somebody who you weren't overly familiar with yeah yeah yeah, definitely like having Lyd as my mentor over the last year and then having her at the games being a, a commentator um she was able to pre-warn me about I guess the hype that was about my competition and I did have a few people kind of warning me they're like obviously like people are marking you as a medal contender um so I was warned about it all and um, so I, I definitely, like, knew that I couldn't get too excited about it. Like, and um, it's kind of, I guess, yeah, definitely was the first time that I had had so much media attention. Like, I, as the season built, like, I knew I was on the news at home and everyone was getting really excited for the Olympics. And so my friends would be sending me, like, um, uh, I guess, screen grabs of me being on the news at home. So I knew that there was, like, getting slowly more and more hype. Um, but then that's also why I went out at the Olympics, I turned off my social media because I'm like I don't really need to know like that's none of my business what's being said about me at home I just need to focus on what I'm doing here on the ground um but then yeah having Lid there was honestly the best thing because she was just like this calming voice that just grounded me the whole time um and uh, and I knew that like she was obviously had a, her job to do but she was much uh, support so much as like huge support to me at the games and that was like I guess her second job was being on the phone to me calming me down and um keeping me centered and uh, I'm so grateful to have her there and it's also to having someone like um, Alyssa Camplin as sort of what the deputy chef to Michonne, she was everywhere. Like, I mean, we kept saying on the show, like, God, she should be our closing ceremony flag, but I think we've seen her more on TV than some yes. of our athletes. But, I mean, like, and she's also seemingly so energetic and so positive as well. So, I mean, it must be great to have someone like her constantly there as well supporting you. Yeah, yeah, and she actually had contacted me um, before the games just to see how I was going and how my preparation was, and um, and then when we uh, ultimately got nominated, um, she was just checking in to see if we were like going very well. And then as we like got to know each other more and more, we realised our backgrounds were quite similar. So like she had come from track and field, and she actually was coached by um, my coach as well at Doncaster Athletics Club, and so that was really beautiful to be able to share that moment. And then I was able to talk to her and be like, look, we are all just track and field athletes that run on ice. Like watch us in the warm up and see it. She's like, it's exactly like this. Like that's so crazy. Um, and so that was really cool to be able to like teach her about our sport and, um, and be able to like be relatable to be each other a little bit. And then she was just such a big help and, and it's so fantastic to like see her face at the, at the finished dock and she was able to help us and she picked it up very quickly. She's a very good sled dog i might take her on season <laughs> <laughs> she has time 
Wow. We'll, we'll remember that, which is actually interesting because we always joke when we get aerial skiers on, on the show, we're constantly saying like, you know, stop stealing the gymnasts. And then when we get the gymnasts on the show, we're saying like, just don't listen to those aerial skiers. You stay in gymnastics and maybe we can do that. But I, I like this sort of with the athletic side of things, obviously going into bobsled. I think that maybe what you need to do in the next four years, get someone like Peter Bowl, Rowan Browning, just like, you know, they, they did all right in Tokyo, sure. I'm sure they're mm. going to do well in Birmingham, you know, very shortly. But like once that, bugger Paris, get them to go to Milan. Like, you know, then we can get, yeah. the, we can get the men's bobsled going. That'd be a good uh-huh. duo there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, they can go do their Paris thing and then come over to bobsled. Like I True. I'm, I definitely think that like the pathway or to come into bobsleigh is like is through track and field. Like it, it just sets such a good base. Um, there is other sports, obviously, like you look into rugby, there's been volleyballers, obviously you have crossfitters that come in, but track and field just has such a good base for um, you to be able to then build strength and power on top of that for bobsleigh. Um, so yeah, I guess like I'm hoping that the sport grows. I'm hoping that like the coverage that we did receive at the games um, entices people to look into bobsleigh and see if um, their talents lie there. Um, we actually have recruitment camps going to be happening in the middle of May um, or more towards the end of May. And I'll be attending those and um, hopefully see uh, what kind of talent lies there and see maybe if I'll be able to gather some new teammates for the next four years. There you go. I like that. That's um. I'll 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 get better at my running then, Bree, and maybe I'll come along to one of them. Uh, we'll oh see yeah, how come we... on. <laughs> yeah, never too late, right? I'm sure it can uh, it can happen eventually. Just with the with the two men, uh, ultimately finished sixteenth. Uh, I mean, obviously, given some of the success you and Kiara had, had sort of in those events. I mean, had you set yourself a goal sort of going into that, and sort of how did you both leave with that finishing result? Yeah, I think a top 10 result was what I personally was aiming for and I think that could have been achievable, but ultimately it wasn't meant to be. Um, But it was Kiara's first time doing a highlight event and doing a four-day event and and that can be quite intimidating. Again, it was like my first time. um, Again, I have competed in world champs before, but a lot of the time we're just like – especially in my early days of my career, we were just trying to get down the track. It was just an experience. Um, But that was, again, my first highlight event where I really wanted to, like, give it a good hot crack. Um, And so I I was a little bit disappointed with the 16th. I think that that didn't really show our true potential. Um, But ultimately, me and Kiara, that was our fourth race together. Um, it was on the big stage and, um, yeah, I just think you have to take those experiences, learn from them, and then uh, moving forward you put all your learnings into place. So how does that then work with you as a duo now that you've done an Olympics? Do you sort of stay together? Do you go back to Sarah? Like, I mean, is that something that you're still working out kind of in the lead up to the next World Cup and it's kind of a bit fluid and it kind of comes and goes with how it works? Yeah, it just ultimately is working out what everybody wants to do. Um, Kiara has said that she actually wants to have a break for a little bit and she wants to get her life set up in Australia. Um, she may come back to the sport, I'm not, not too sure. Uh, but, yeah, so that's why I'm, I'll be attending the recruit, recruitment camps and um, looking to see if um, there are any teammates out there that would like to come on board and, and join, my, join my team. It does seem very stacked, though, in terms of at least in the lead up to Beijing and obviously you're going to recruitment camps. But as we were talking about, you know, obviously with Kiara, we had Ash and Sarah on the show as well, too. People like Stephanie and T. Like, I mean, a bunch of obviously great athletes who are sort of involved there and thereabouts. So it seems as though 
we kind of in a golden era a little bit for at least female bobsledding, would you would you say, and that yeah. we hope to continue that in the lead up to Milan? Yeah, definitely. I think we're in a golden era. Um, for so many years, it was just Astrid, uh, Locke Wilkinson, like um, being the pilot and and being able to qualify through our continental position. Um, and but now I think having like myself, having Ash, both being pilots, and then if Sarah is to go on and and pilot herself, um, it means that like we've got three teams on on like out there in the circuits and so then you're obviously bringing more females and uh, to be brakemen and teammates um so yeah it definitely is like a, a bobsleigh boom at the moment especially in the female side i was gonna say do we need more men like i mean where are the men all of a sudden and we've got a male bobsled shortage in australia or something going on at the moment Bree. do i need to I get involved here <laughs> i think they're just trying to work out what how how they're going to do it because the men's team is so that's a, a that's another a whole different element of bobsleigh because you have the two men and then you also have the four men and like and the time it takes to do, become a top pilot in the two men in the men's field is takes a very long time but then to also become a top pilot in the four men is a whole different ball game so i think that's why they're at the moment they're trying to work out um what they're what they're doing and and hopefully and i think the federation is trying to set up like a bit more of a structure and a program to be able to develop a team from i guess like go to work and so um yeah i think that's a longer process and project for the federation um but i guess the women right now we've got a big boom happening and it's exciting times and so um it'll be a fantastic to be able to get some good athletes on board and to be able to develop them over the next four years we're obviously talking at the beginning of the interview about sort of finishing the Olympics, having a bit of time off yourself. But when you came back to Australia, you've obviously recently had a couple of events sort of celebrating the success of the team. But what's it been like to sort of come back and that whole attention thing? All of a sudden people probably know you a little bit more now. I don't know if you're getting recognised on the street, but visiting schools, people sending you more messages. I mean, how have you adapted to kind of that level of recognition? Yeah, I've had people come up and say like how fantastic my performance was and like how much that they they enjoyed watching me and learning about my journey and learning about me as a person. And that's been really lovely to see because again, I turned off my social media and so I didn't really know how much coverage was actually happening of myself and my event. And so to actually like realize that people were watching me and getting excited about it was like it was awesome. Um and then the, I think the best part about it all has been going to the events and meeting some people that I like obviously just looked up to for years and years. And and you meet and you meet people and you learn about their stories and and all that kind of stuff. And then you meet people that you've never even heard of before, but hear about their stories. I'm just like, wow, that's so amazing. And um, just getting to to know people and rub shoulders with some greats. Like I went to the AOC AGM the other day and that was just a pit full of legends. Like the alumni, Olympic alum, alumni there was amazing. It was like um, James Tompkins. You have wow. um, Patty Johnson. You have Lane Beachley, Natalie Cook. Like I'm just sitting there going, this is legit. This is awesome. <laughs> and uh, um and then you're able to just go and talk to them like normal people, and uh, and that's so lo- nice. And you, because you do you, like those people, sure they've got, had a lot of media attention and success, but they're just normal people. Um, and then that's been really cool to be able to do that. 
So, yeah, I really enjoyed going to events and, and meeting new people and stuff. Um, but, and I guess that's a, that's a big perk about it all. Um, but yeah, I'm, I think I'm ready to go back to training now. Like I've, I've had my fun, I've done all my events and all that kind of stuff. And so I'll have one more month here in Australia kind of organizing things. And then I'm going to head back overseas and, um, and then be able to get back to work. I also believe you graduated too in this sort of uh, <laughs> period between the Olympics and that too. So you keep, keep busy there as well. So, I mean, congratulations. What, what, what were you graduated in and kind of what will that lead to in the future uh, in a post bobsled career? Yeah, yeah, I graduated in physical education teaching, which is something that has been a long time coming. And that was an eight-year process. Um, it was it, I actually began that when I was a track and field athlete. So that, wow. that tells you how long I've been doing that. And so I um I was at first at RMIT and then I got a full um a full ride scholarship over to America as a 400 meter hurdler. And then I came back and I switched universities and I still was continuing doing PE teaching at Deakin. Um, and yeah, over the, like over the course of the last four years, I, um, I actually graduated, but I couldn't celebrate my graduation because of COVID and I was over in Germany. So after coming back home, I was able to go and do that at Deakin. And um, that was a nice, like a very nice end to that chapter. I didn't think, I was like, oh, maybe this is a little bit extra and like unnecessary that I do this now because I graduated back in 2019. But I'm like, no, no, go and celebrate it. Like create a bookend to that um, to that journey and um, I'm actually really glad that I did that because now it feels like I'm like, yes, all right, done that. It feels real that. now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You've worn the hat, you've worn the, the gown, you've done all the yeah. kind of formal stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Mum and dad are happy you've got the photo that's on the mantelpiece, all that kind oh, of Oh yeah, mum's mum's got got my degree up here actually. And she keeps <laughs> it up here in cans. I think she's very proud of it. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, like I'm happy I've done that. I've ticked that box. And it's always something that I have in the back pocket, you know. Like I don't think I will go into te- uh, teaching. Um, I do love teaching and um the reason why I like decided to do teaching was that I was so heavily influenced by my teachers at my high school at Mount Lydda Mercy College. Um, they were, they were so amazing. And a lot of my teachers there changed my life. Um, so I really wanted to be able to do that for other students, but I think I can still do that for people, help like, you know, help them become the best versions of themselves um, in other capacities now with all the skills that I've developed from uh, over the years. Tell you one thing, it'd be cool to have a PE teacher though who was an Olympian. I mean, I'd, I'd yes. listen more in school. Like, you know, just <laughs> yeah, that's that's a cool story to have. Two two things before I let you go. Now, obviously, I'm not. This is not me trying to put the pressure on you to go towards 2030, but I'm just saying it. You'll be there in 2030. At the time of recording this, they're sort of in the process where they're they're looking at the next host uh, for 2030. This sort of new IOC process. They're visiting Salt Lake City, they're visiting Vancouver, there's uh, cities in Spain and Japan as well that are looking at bidding. Okay. Right now, just I'm going to ask you on the cusp, who would you like to see host the 2030 Olympics? Bree, would you like to go to Salt Lake? Would you like to go to Vancouver, Japan, Spain? Like, would you have a preference out of those four? Oh, no, I wouldn't have a preference, I don't okay. think. I, I don't think I would have too much of a preference. I think... Like surely somewhere in America would would be awesome. 
I think they would put on a legit Olympics. I think well, they would be. Salt Lake obviously did very well in 2002 and they haven't had, I mean, they're obviously about to have LA in 2028, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. so they could potentially have two Olympics in two years, uh, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, I'll tell you but, what, also having it in Japan would be a very good time difference conversion for us in Australia. Very much because so. that's what been that's what's been awesome about the last two Olympics. Like Pyeongchang and Beijing had uh, like our time differences w- wasn't that big from Australia, and so yeah. everyone was able to watch our events pretty much live. Um, yeah. And now that it's going back to Europe for Milano Cortina, um, people like might have to wake up in the middle of the night to watch some events, um, or they just will like. A, they'll just get it um, on the delay. Well, so, I think we're going to say that with Birmingham for the Commonwealth Games. We've been so spoiled for the last few Olympics and Commonwealth Games that we're going to get back to going getting up early for exactly. these things, right? Yeah. So I think so. I think if we were looking for the benefit of us Australians, I think Japan would be awesome. I think they would also do a very cool Olympics, but I do think that America would go above and beyond. I think that would be really cool. I also think it would be great for Japan to get – the Olympics as well, because Nagano was the first real Winter Olympics. I remember in 98 and they were great. But also given how Tokyo sort of happened with no real crowds and they couldn't really have an Olympics. So kind of, you know, almost have that proper Olympics that they sort of missed out sadly with Tokyo. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely think that would be very nice for them for sure. But you know what? I if they if we were to be able to have an Olympics in like in Australia, a Winter Olympics Mm -hmm. in Australia for 2030, I would continue on. Oh, I think, there you go. I think my boyfriend Christian would kill me. I think my family would be like, you're mad, but I would continue on. Well, he's got to get to an Olympics too, right? I mean, I know we missed out for, for yes. Beijing, but, I mean, that gives him a couple more to try towards, right? Oh, I don't know if his body will hold up. <laughs> <laughs> All the germs I, get put through so much, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, but, oh, it's it's such it's such a grind for them, and they have to do so much work just to be on their team. But if they're yeah. on their team, they're ultimately in the shop for the medals. Um, and so the thing is, is that they like he has to like he's going again and he's a uh, he's currently at home in germany rehabbing his ankle because he dislocated his ankle in the the qualification push test event um but yeah he's he's going again he's given it a good hard crack and i think for us both it's like all right I've been to my first Olympics. We couldn't do our debut together, but next time we're like we're both gonna like go for a medal, um, and then that's our next story together, and and that's really exciting. I see it. I've got this vision right now, Bree. It's gonna it's gonna happen. All right, just focus on the goal. <laughs> I'm gonna end this um, one question. Essendon, what's happening, Bree? Oh, oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm a Carlton supporter. I've got to, I've got to put some sort of no, bragging you're right having, somewhere. You're having your salt in the wounds. Oh, we're not doing great, are we? I, I went to actually the the Anzac Day match, and that was an awesome match. And we should have won that. We just couldn't get the ball through the sticks. We just couldn't. <laughs> and I, I was just like sitting there being like, we should be so far in front here, but we just couldn't execute. And uh, um, that was, it was disappointing, but I'm obviously, I'm a bombers girl all the way and I'll keep supporting. We'll get there. We need Tipper back in the team. So coach put Tipper back in and uh, let's see like what happens because we're not doing so great at the moment. 
it's I I respect the loyalty. That's all that matters. As any football fan, you you have the hard times and you you remain mm. loyal. And when they eventually come good, it makes it all the more better, right? Right, right, right. And and the funny thing is, is like like I've introduced Christian into AFL just like at the time where Omas aren't doing so well, and he's like, "Why are you making me go for this team?" And <laughs> <laughs> Like when I started going for the, we were like, you know, we were in the grand finals, premiers and everything. So our time will come again. Like look yep. at Melbourne, look at them a few years ago. They were bottom of the ladder, wooden spoon favourites pretty much. And then now look at them. So I, I have faith that we will climb up the ladder in the future. It's it's crazy to think the thing that has been great about the AFL in the last, I don't know, 10 or so years, we've seen, well, even, you know, longer than that, we've seen so many teams break those droughts, you know, when Sydney yes. won it, when the Bulldogs, Richmond, Melbourne, you know, these teams that have finally broken through. And you mm-hmm. know that has happened in the fact that teams like Carlton and Essendon, who are the, the most dominant sides in the history, if St mm-hmm. Kilda win the premiership anytime soon, the longest droughts will be on Carlton and Essendon, and that's something wrong there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, dear. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> well, let's hope St Kilda doesn't go up because I'm not yeah, a St no. That's yeah. all. <laughs> that's yeah, we, for we, sure. And and for personal reasons, I don't want Brett Ratton coaching another side to a premiership when we let him go. So um, just, uh, <laughs> we'll ignore that. Bree, it's always a pleasure to to get you on the show and and share any of your journeys. Obviously, uh, you know, reliving everything to do with Beijing. And as we will always say, best of luck moving forward. And I'm sure we'll get you on again in the lead up to Milan. Uh, and yep. and we talk about uh, Ben too. Going through to uh, Italy and then uh, cheering you on towards uh, your your second Olympics. But uh, we appreciate oh, your time on the show today. Thank you very much. It's always it's always fun to have a chat. So I look forward to our next one. And a massive thanks to Bree there for her time. Such an insightful chat, learning a lot about what was going on in the mind during those olympics and very fascinating to hear just about the mixed emotions going on there of being excited for finishing fifth but also being disappointed on not getting a medal and i loved hearing there just about the energy that was going through the team throughout the beijing olympics in australia there particularly on the sliding team as well and just how iconic it was that australia got a silver medal in a sliding sport and then a fifth place again as i sort of mentioned there imagine going back to vancouver and saying in 12 years time australia is going to come away with a second and a fifth in sliding sports and olympic games you would take that any day of the week but a big thanks to brie and if you want to see that interview the video version of that available on our youtube channel as well so uh hit us up off the podium and you will be able to find those. We've got some great chats coming your way in the coming weeks. Stay tuned. The best way to hear all these interviews, of course, is to subscribe to Off The Podium wherever good podcasts are found, obviously on YouTube as well for the video versions. Hit us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you will stay up to date with everything they've got going on there. Send us a message. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. If there's any guests you would like us to track down, as always, send us some suggestions. And if you've got any ideas for other episodes, Colin, Jared, and myself, always open to some ideas, and we would love to hear what you think of the show. Also coming up, we've got some great interviews, as I mentioned, but of course the Commonwealth Games are next month. So uh, we'll be doing a bit of coverage on the Commonwealth Games. They're happening in Birmingham for our non-Commonwealth listeners. If you may be listening to us in the United States, 
Uh, the Commonwealth Games, of course, are basically an Olympics for Commonwealth nations. We did a bit of coverage back in 2018 for the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. When they were in Australia, these next ones are held in England. So uh, a lot of fun will be had during those. Obviously not doing as extensive coverage as we would do during an Olympic Games, but we'll do a few episodes to cover those as well. And of course, later in the year, for the very first time, we're going to be covering the World Cup soccer, which is very, very exciting. So stay tuned for that as well. Plenty to come on Off the Podium, your award-winning Olympic podcast. He thought I wasn't going to mention it today. There it is. We are an award-winning show. Subtle break, as always. Thanks again to Bree. Thanks again to you listening. As always, shout out to Jason Momoa. And remember, always go left. Go left.